Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Fall is just around the corner and those of you with easy keepers and metabolic horses need to be extra careful at turnout time. As the seasons change, the sugar content in grass increases, often leading to a spike in cases of founder. The folks at Equithrive have formulated products to help you navigate these potential pasture pitfalls. Equithrive's Metabarol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bona fide joint and metabolic support, all-in-one, easy-to-feed pellet. Visit equithrive.com today and use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF to get 20% off your first order plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our Humble Hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. Realizing that your horse's life is maybe coming to a close is never easy to think about or talk about, but it's a conversation that really needs to happen. As a hoof care provider, I often come to horses that are struggling a lot of ways, physically, with lameness, and their quality of life sometimes comes into question. I reached out to my personal veterinarian and friend, Dr. Sarah Cook, to see if she would come on the podcast again and talk about when is it time to let your horse go? Dr. Sarah is an incredible veterinarian and I have seen her have difficult conversations with owners time and time again and have been really impressed with her perspective and thoughts on the subject. And I thought she would be the absolute perfect person to talk about this really difficult topic. So obviously this is a really hard topic and we're talking about euthanasia, which is something that is a touchy subject anyway. Um, but there are times as a hoof care provider and I'm sure as a veterinarian that we come to horses that it's really hard for us to watch their pain and owners might not always recognize that the horse is having trouble. Um, so I thought it'd be something that would be good to talk about because it's sometimes owners need a little bit more help in deciding when it's time to let a horse go. And that's something that I'm not good with. So <laughs> I wanted to turn to somebody who knew more about it and when to make those decisions. Um, so first, I guess the first question to ask is what are the criteria for euthanasia? That's a really good question. It is a really tough topic, um, but I think that having some clear sort of guidelines can really help make the decisions easier. The first thing to know about euthanasia is that 
Um, it is the horse owner's decision. So it's nobody else's decision. It's not the veterinarian's decision. It's the horse owner's decision. So I think that everyone involved in the case, um, what I'll call like the care team of the horse, do need to appreciate that, you know, at the end of the day, the decision does lie with the horse's owner. But in terms of guiding the owner through that process and decision-making process, there are definitely some guidelines available. So the AAEP is the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and they do have some pretty helpful guidelines. I'll read them here to get us started. So what the statements are, and I think it's interesting to pay attention to the word choice here. So a horse should not have to endure the following. And there's a list of four things. One, continuous or unmanageable pain from a condition that is chronic and incurable. Two, a medical condition or a surgical procedure that has a poor prognosis for a good quality of life. Three, continuous analgesic medication and or box stall confinement for the relief of pain for the rest of the horse's life. Four, an unmanageable medical or behavioral condition that renders it a hazard to itself or its handlers. So that gives us to start from sort of a scaffolding about the type of problems that you could be considering euthanasia in response to. It's not saying that every horse that's in pain needs to be euthanized, obviously, but it gives you a basis of a minimum criteria from which you can then proceed to say, is euthanasia appropriate in this case or not? So I think I I would just highlight a few of the word choices, like I said. I think one of the words that causes me the most angst is the word manageable. So, you know, manageable, okay, is that manageable by me, the doctor? Um, Is it my choices that are leading to whether this is manageable or not? But a lot of times it's it's choices made by the horse's owner, you know, what level of care they are willing and or able to provide, you know. A big draft horse with laminitis, literally the owner may not be capable of lifting those feet and providing, you know, even just daily cleaning or even changing boots on a large horse. So what level of care can be expected to be um, achieved in a certain situation? So manageable, I think I find that as a, a very liquid word. <laughs> And then, you know, the other one I'll point out is the continuous analgesic medication. So what this is saying is basically if a horse requires daily pain medication for the rest of its life, that is acceptable criteria for euthanasia. I'm not saying every horse that needs butte should be euthanized, but I'm saying that this is establishing a minimum criteria for which euthanasia can be considered, and that is on the list. So sometimes I start here with my clients saying, you know, your horse has X condition and is in pain and has met the minimum criteria from which we can start to discuss when euthanasia might be appropriate. And I I use that as a springboard to gauge sort of the owner's reaction to that, whether it's like, boy, yeah, I've been thinking about that myself. Thanks for bringing it up. Or, you know, ranges from being horrified (laughs) or even, you know, really offended and, and, and upset with me. So that happens and that's okay. I think the important thing is that, you know, the dialogue be opened and, and every situation is different, but you need a starting point. So oftentimes I'll use the AP guidelines for me as a starting point. Anyone can find them. Um, they can be, if you Google AAP euthanasia guidelines, it's the first thing that pops up. So it's available to everyone. And I think, you know, some good thought went into making them. So 
use that as a resource. Um, that's yeah, and that's really interesting about the pain medication because I feel like there's a lot of horses that live on daily NSAIDs and, I mean, compete on <laughs> NSAIDs, maybe not, you know, at levels where that would be tested for, but are very much in use. So I hadn't really thought about that as something that would be a consideration, but I guess it, it I feel like there are times when I come to owners and they almost want to have a reason to like let a horse go because it's hard for them to watch the horse in pain. So even that, which seems like, you know, a, a kind of minimal requirement, sounds like it's, you know, a good, a good guideline to have and be aware of for sure. I just wanted to touch on, you know, a few things. First of all, I had mentioned previously that it's the horse owner's decision about euthanasia. As a vet, I have a few things to consider, legally speaking. So one, I have to be sure that the person is the horse's rightful owner. And this seems like a very silly thing and very obvious, but it's not always um, because sometimes horses are leased, sometimes there's verbal agreements, sometimes there's other parties involved. So I, as a veterinarian, have to be reasonably confident that the owner is the actual owner. And then the only other legal consideration would be if the horse is insured, so you absolutely have to deal with the insurance company before making those decisions. If you don't, then potentially any kind of compensation or payout could be affected. So depending on what type of insurance the horse has and what type of injury the horse has, they may either the, the insurance company may either require certain things to be done before euthanasia or in some cases after euthanasia, like they may require a post-mortem exam where the, you know, the limb or the joint involved is examined um, after death and documented so that they have a documentation of the of the cause of death so just that's a few things that sometimes owners forget to tell me that the horse is insured if it's an emergency type of situation um, but it, it needs to be kept in mind so just those are the only two caveats okay yeah that makes sense um, and in terms of I mean I feel I've only lived in this area and I know that you've lived all over the world and we had talked a little bit about talking about the cultural differences of euthanasia obviously that's something that you have experience with living in other countries so you know, what, what is done or what is considered elsewhere for guidelines for euthanasia or what is done in other places that, you know, might be different than here? Yeah, I guess I don't have vast experience in lots of different parts of the world, but I will say, having worked in South America and Central America, it's a lot less common there to euthanize horses. And again, I'm really restricting my expertise to horses here. But there's a few things at play there. One, you know, they are a bit more of a working animal there sometimes. And so I think that there's not always as much consideration paid to their level of suffering. But also there's just a bit of a different point of view. I think if I could sum it up, it would be that sometimes horse owners think that that's not their decision to make, right? Like it's in God's hands or whatever might be that it's just not, you know, suffering is part of life and um, it's not fair to make that decision for the animal. So I think there's some more reluctance in different parts of the world based on that basic premise that, you know, that's, that's not your decision to make. And I think I'd push gently back on that. Like, in our situation particularly, where these are not working animals, right? These are, for one, I mean, they may work. I'm not saying they don't work, but they're not involved directly in, you know, subsistence of it, of their owners. So I would say that we make all the decisions for our horses, right? Like, from birth to how they're managed to what they're fed to what their job is, how hard they're used. I mean, we make every decision. They really don't make very many of them for themselves. And so to abdicate that last decision seems like 
to me, um, a bit of a, oh, let, letting the horse down in a way, because we do, you know, we manage and control every aspect of their life. So I think we, we can't walk away from the decision at the end of their life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, I haven't made that decision before. I haven't, you know, horses that I've leased, I obviously wasn't the one making the decision to euthanize them. And right now my horse is still hanging on, (laughs) but, um, I, yeah, I think that there are times when I've thought like it, it could be the kindest thing to do for your animal to let them go out of suffering that they're having to endure because they're not, you know, they're a prey animal and they're not maybe aware that things could get better or be different. So yeah, I totally understand what you're saying with that. Yeah. And I guess like the most logical thing to talk about then is, you know, if one of the guidelines is that, you know, if we're making sure these horses aren't enduring pain daily, how can we recognize pain and know if it's at that point that they're suffering throughout the day? Yeah. I mean, that's really the crux of the issue is like recognizing pain and, you know, we do our best to gauge it based on how we feel the horse is behaving really. Right. I mean, we've all seen both I think sides of the coin, you can have a horse that's very, very lame, you know, lame at a walk, but is happy as a clam, eating, bright, inquisitive, friendly, you know, all the hallmarks of a, of a mentally healthy animal, um, but very, very lame. And then I think we've also seen the opposite of horses that may not, to at first glance, seem very lame, but they are, you know, withdrawn. They may go to the back of the stall. They may show the pain face, which has been nicely described um, in recent years. So the way that uh, horses look when they are in pain is actually can be described accurately. So there's the ears half back, the eyes um, tend to be closed, and the the there can be tension lines around the eyes and the muzzle and also the behavior is withdrawn. So I think that's something that I sometimes actually carry around a little, uh, like a line drawing of a horse expressing the pain face. And I sometimes use it like, Hey, when I'm talking to owners about, you know, whether their horse is in pain or not, I show them that the little line drawing and I said, does he ever look like this? And I show it to them and, and sometimes they're like, oh yeah, and they get it. And sometimes the answer is no. Like I said, there's definitely horses that can cope with lot high levels of pain and still remain just about as, you know, as bright and cheerful as, as you can imagine. So the pain face is useful and touching on that pain face diagram that I encourage you guys to at least look at, if not print out, there's another similar pain recognition algorithm, basically, that has come out of Sue Dyson's work. And it's called the ridden horse ethogram, pain ethogram. So it's basically a list of behaviors that horses can display when they're ridden. It includes like champing their mouth, swishing their tail, ears back. There's a a lot of them. And I also print this out and I encourage people to like look for them. And it's not like all of these are indicators of lameness, but there's been, it's been shown that if the horse has eight or more of these behaviors, they're highly likely to have pain somewhere, whether that's, like I said, lameness or back pain or neck pain, they're highly likely to have pain. So having some criteria is something fairly new. Like when I graduated from vet school, it wasn't really available to us to have concrete behaviors that have been documented to correlate to pain. So again, I didn't encourage everyone to take a look at the equine pain face um, and the ridden horse ethogram that Sue Dyson developed as far as those behaviors go. It's really, really helpful. 
it'll ruin watching horse shows for you forever. I'm sorry. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm ruined anyway. All I look at is their feet and their stomach. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Again, behavior-wise, I think pain can be manifest as either withdrawal, so like not involving themselves in the social activities of either their human people or their their horse herd. So withdrawing and and not engaging in that way or occasionally aggression as well. So Horses that are randomly aggressive, either to their handlers or to other horses, I I want to look for a source of pain. It may not be lameness, right? It may be abdominal pain or back pain or some other type of pain. But I think horses that are randomly aggressive should be carefully evaluated um, for sure. So aggression, withdrawal, pain face, all of those are sort of, I look at them in conjunction with whether or not the horse is limping, whether or not they can hold up their feet easily. I have to say that as far as decision-making criteria, you know, this applies directly to you guys. I, I ask the owner and I ask the farrier if I can, like, how is your horse to shoe? Or is your horse holding up all four feet without complaining? Or does the farrier have to take breaks every 15 seconds just to let the horse rest? Because that's a really, you know, I think I, I give you guys all the credit in the world for crawling underneath those painful horses, you know, time and time again. But I think that if a horse cannot comfortably stand to be trimmed, I mean, not shod, maybe that's another level, but if a horse can't comfortably stand to be trimmed, in my mind, that's not acceptable to me. They either need pain medication if they're not already on it, or if they are already on pain medication, you know, something else needs to be addressed. Cause that's not really a big ask. You know, you all know the tricks. You keep the feet low, you give them breaks, you give them butte the morning before. I mean, you can do all those things, but at the end of the day, to me, not being able to hold up their feet for a trim is a criteria for euthanasia, to be to be honest. Some of the other ones that come up, obviously like a horse that spends a lot of time down, that's not a good sign. And it typically is like along with laminitis cases, if they're spending a lot of time down, that's a, a level of comfort that, you know, is really not good. That's not a natural behavior for a horse. So if they're lying down for multiple hours per day, that comfort level is not acceptable. You know, could it be curable? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying it's not curable, but you know, in terms of for me, pain levels that that really trigger a hard discussion involve lying down for long periods of time. The flip side of that can be older horses that may not be lame, but they're having trouble getting up. So that's a big one because I think that really having a horse down in a stall and struggling to get up is one of the hardest things to watch. They can injure themselves. They can absolutely injure their humans. If a horse is cast, you know, one time you get them up, cast another time you get them up. But if it's happening regularly, I don't think that that's acceptable for either humans or or the horses that are going through that. So horses that are repeatedly found down and unable to get up without assistance, that's a big one. That's a big one. So... Other than that, again, I think I touched on aggression before, but other problems that can come up, I I think I have this conversation at least once a week about NSAIDs, right? So Butte, Banamine, Equiox, and as someone with a painful horse will tell me like, well, I don't want to give her that because she's been diagnosed with ulcers in the past. Okay, I hear that, and I'm not here to give your horse ulcers, but chronic pain is a huge cause of ulcers. So it's a bit of of a... damned if you do and you're damned if you don't type of thing. So if the horse is really that uncomfortable, yes, absolutely. You can have GI side effects. You can have more prone to colic, more prone to ulcers. 
for a number of reasons. Their their overall you know state of of sort of elevated nervous system from being in pain. And they may move less, they may walk less, which is again going to affect their digestive system. So I think you could have downstream effects from pain. And if that is becoming a repeatable issue, that may also factor into the decision for euthanasia if you're having problems with recurrent colic and you know you feel like you can't use pain medications because of that, or maybe you need to, you know, dive into other pain medications that aren't non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, that's another option. But I think that needs to be part of the discussion. Like, okay, this isn't working anymore. We need to change change the pain management regime here. And maybe you do, you know, need to rely less on daily medications and more on joint injections, for example, in a really arthritic horse or change up the management to, to address the pain. Yeah. And you had mentioned this a while ago, but Talking from the hoof care pro side of things, like when you're trimming a horse that's really painful, it is, I mean, it's difficult emotionally, like you don't want to, nobody wants to see a horse in pain or difficult, you know, having a hard time holding up their feet, but it's also, you know, as much as we maybe seem like it's not hard on us, on our body, but it is, it's really hard to, to trim a horse that is really leaning and, and anything to help alleviate that, whether that is, you know, talking to your vet about what that can, what can be done to make that easier. Um, yeah, it can be, it's, it's tough. (laughs) Yeah. I would encourage anyone, you know, let that be a, another starting point, like an entry point for a conversation saying like, Hey, you know, this horse really can't hold up his left hind. And I, I'd like you to just, when you get a, you know, a chance to ask your veterinarian, if there's anything that he or she suggests, you know, that we can do, whether it's medication, like I said, medication the day of, or, or um, something else. I know you guys usually go above and beyond with like soft pads and things like that if there's a sore hoof um, for the horse to stand on. But a lot of times it's not the other hoof. It's something higher up, like something in the pelvis that they just can't manage to shift weight anymore. So that's that's a really big one. And I would say, you know, the older I get, the more my back hurts. And my job isn't even holding up legs all day, but I think you need to advocate for yourself too. It's not fair to expect you to make miracles happen every six weeks. So... Yeah, and obviously, I mean, this is kind of a focus on hoof and hoof care and soundness for this podcast. So when I see owners and think maybe their horse is nearing a situation where it could be time to think about putting them down, it's usually because I see lameness issues in terms of, I mean, that's just where my, where my focus goes whenever I see a horse. So is there, you know, a criteria for when to draw the line? I mean, I have a horse that you know, probably will never be 100% all the time. (laughs) And, you know, he's a great companion and hanging out. But, you know, what would be a guideline for when that's, uh, you know, to draw the line there? (laughs) Oh, boy. I mean, we can can spend years talking about this decision because it often takes that long to sort of figure it out. You know, if you have a, you know, you know, one of my horses has been that lame on and off since he was six years old and he's 24 now you know and I've had that talk with myself a number of times and there's been a long road of like finding management situations that work for him you know he no longer goes in a stall because when he does he's really crippled when he comes out of it so you know he's in a managed in an in and out type of situation which is what he needs to to stay manageably happy but (laughs) at the end of the day I mean I think it's every owner's decision based on what they see their horse doing. And I think if you wait until there's no question, if you wait until everyone would agree that it's time, you probably waited too long. 
because those guys, you know, by the time they do, think people tell me things like, oh, but he's still eating, you know, I mean, how many horses do you know really stop eating? Unless they're a finicky thoroughbred. They usually keep eating right through the worst laminitis. I mean, typically speaking, horses don't stop eating from lameness, right? That's not really an acceptable criteria to me. So I think it has to do with their normal behaviors, right? Can they walk around? Can they be turned out? Can they, hopefully, be part of a herd? I don't take it into account whether or not they can be ridden, really, because a lot of times we're talking about horses that that, that expectation has already gone. But um, I think what we're talking about here is like, when do you decide whether a horse is pasture sound and acceptable versus not? I mean, that's the decision that's tough. And, and again, you know, it comes down a lot to like what's available for that horse. Like, you know, if you're having trouble deciding whether a horse is comfortable or not, look at the management system. Is there anything that can be improved upon? You know, can this horse, could this horse be in a different situation where it's either on less rocky ground or it's not ex expected to, um, you know, go out in a big field all day? Is there a way to manage this horse's surroundings that could help them stay comfortable in the long run? And sometimes there are and sometimes there aren't. Not every situation, not every owner is going to be able to, to create the perfect environment for this horse to thrive. And I have to respect that too. You know, I don't, I don't think everyone should be have to bend over backwards and alter the entire layout of their farm, you know, to, to make one horse comfortable. I, I don't know that that's feasible. Yeah. yeah, and going back to what you said about um, if you get to the point where it has to be done, like you've probably waited too long. I mean, this is not a horse, but even when it was my cat a few years ago, I wish I had euthanized her earlier. I think that when I think back on it, she had a longer time of, suffering than she should have you know and so I I never I mean obviously I'm not the owner but I would never blame an owner for making a decision when maybe to others it might look like it's sooner Too than soon. it needs to be yeah. yeah I think that's really important and I I feel this a lot because I will often you know if someone's I'll deal with I'll just give a real life example with no names you know there's a horse with really pretty terrible navicular changes and he's got calcification in his deep flexor tendon and he's really not done well with corrective shoeing and the owner you know who got him as a rescue at auction is considering putting him down and getting flack from her barn mates right so that this is a situation that comes up fairly commonly like oh but you haven't done xyz to this horse or what if you did this and I would say, you know, this woman has done a lot. There's been a lot of people working on this horse. I'm not the only vet that's seen it. You know, and I don't think that everyone needs to turn their pocketbook inside out and their emotions inside out for a horse, you know, that with a chronic incurable lameness. You know, it's been documented. It's acceptable. I would say, please don't give that person any more you know, heartache than they're already going through. And like you said, give them credit for, you know, the, out from, from one point of view, it may look like it's a little bit early, but better a little early than too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously jumping off of that, um, there are times when maybe it is later than it should be. And, you know, if you're in a situation where maybe the other members of the care team are not agreeing on how the horse is doing or the plan for the horse how do you approach that as the veterinarian yeah i mean again i'll circle back like it is the owner's decision so there's only so much i can do there have definitely been scenarios where i really 
pushed about as hard as I can push, um, you know, pointing out all the ways in which I think the horse is miserable and the ways in which it's not going to get better and the decision is still no. And then I think I, most of the time, I just have to accept that and do what I can do to improve the horse's level of comfort during the time. And that's usually what happens. I think in theory, you know, I, I would like to say that I could step out of the situation and say, look, I'm just not comfortable being your veterinarian anymore because we don't agree. But in reality, I, I don't think I've ever done that because, you know, to me, I just say, okay, it is your decision and I respect that. And I'm, my role here is to be the horse's advocate to the extent that I can and suggest what can be done. And that's what I do. So, yeah, I mean, I think there, there could be a scenario where ethically speaking, you'd be totally in your rights to withdraw your services right and I think maybe farriers earlier than vets because you're actually physically in harm's way a down horse might hurt me if I have to go get them up but you have to you have to be underneath them you know monthly and that I think there definitely would be grounds for you know just saying I'm I don't think this horse is comfortable enough and I don't feel comfortable working on him and so although you know from personally me I don't think that's ever been the decision that I made, I can see that, you know, being something you may have to do and just stick to your, stick to your guns and and protect yourself because really, you know, someone else's decisions shouldn't affect your physical health and your livelihood. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, this is, uh, maybe not the, the most fun thing to talk about. I mean, this whole episode is probably not the most fun thing to talk about, but this probably sounds crazy, but I've actually never seen a horse be euthanized. And so uh, I don't even know that I'd be super familiar with the process. So for owners that maybe haven't been in that situation or aren't familiar with it, what are some methods of euthanasia or what can they expect and what happens after? Sure. Sure. I think this varies a lot depending on where you are in the country as well. So we're in New England and Still the most common method of euthanasia here is an IV overdose of an anesthetic. We use a barbiturate. We use pentobarbital. It's an anesthetic overdose. So basically the first thing that happens is the horse's brain waves stop. So the brain death is first. And then there's usually some potassium in the solution that will stop the heart fairly quickly. But basically, you know, it's the horse is gone mentally before they even hit the ground. So that's, um, there's usually the procedure would go like, you know, the horse would be sedated as if about similar to any procedure, like sedated for, you know, dental floating or some sort of wound repair. The horse is sedated and then a catheter is placed and a large volume of barbiturates given sort of fairly quickly and the horse loses consciousness and falls down. That's the most common way. It has the advantage of being pretty peaceful. So they're typically speaking, it's very quiet. The disadvantage to it really is the drug itself. So pentobarbital has a very long life underground, or even if the horse is composted, there's maybe some conflicting reports on this, but most of the reports conclude that the pentobarbital sticks around for a long time. So it can affect groundwater, it can affect even wildlife. So there have been some incidents where a horse that was euthanized in this way was left out. And there's one really high profile case where a bunch of bald eagles fed on the body and died. And of course, they're federally protected species. So that was a whole big problem for that veterinarian who obviously the veterinarian didn't tell the owner of the horse to leave it out for the birds to pick out, but it happened. Um, And the veterinarian did not say specifically that this carcass needs to be buried 
So you have to be aware that it is, you know, a poison and it's in the horse. So in recent years, there's been sort of a shift to other methods, um, acceptable methods. A gunshot to the brain is acceptable or a captive bolt. You have to have a bit of a longer captive bolt for horses than the average for smaller animals. But captive bolt or gunshot is acceptable. Typically in that scenario, the horse is sedated first as well to minimize the chances that they might move and the, the shot might be misplaced. But again, here, you know, we don't carry on our trucks in our practice and we don't typically do that, I, you know, unless it was extenuating circumstances. So there's another method or a couple, a group of methods, I would say, where the horse is anesthetized first. So given a normal amount of an anesthetic and that causes them to lie down and they're in a, like a surgical plane of anesthesia. And then you can do one of a number of things. One thing is you can give them a concentrated solution of either mag sulfate or potassium chloride. And the rapid administration of that will cause the heart to stop. So that's one method that leaves very little residue in the carcass. And the other one that we've started doing more and more is called intrathecal lidocaine. So again, you anesthetize the horse, surgical plane of anesthesia, and we advance a needle sort of at the back of their skull into the cerebrospinal fluid. So we know we're in the right spot. We get cerebrospinal fluid back out, and then we inject lidocaine basically around the brain, which causes basically immediate, complete cessation of brain function. And then as the horse stops breathing, that's the second thing that happens because the brain stem controls respiration. Horse stops breathing, and then the last thing to stop is the heart. And this method is also quite peaceful. It's very, you know, sort of aesthetically acceptable. It doesn't involve a lot of violence, but it can take a while because the, the heart will continue to beat for like five minutes at least. So in some scenarios, that's nice if the owner is there and they want to spend some time just, you know, talking to the horse or holding the horse's head or whatever. Once the horse is down, of course, um, that actually may be a plus, but it takes a little bit longer. So that's, I would say right now in our practice, we do about 50-50, like pentobarbital versus the lidocaine euthanasias. And so after, you know, you talked about the bald eagle situation. Um, so I guess, I mean, in terms of after the horse is down, I mean, there must be a plan in place beforehand to really know what's going to happen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's all part of the discussion that happens beforehand. So again, this is another thing that really varies depending on where in the country you are. Um, there is no rendering plant within like a reasonable drive of New England anymore. There used to be, but there are not anymore. So my clients here have basically three choices. Option one is burial. Some horses are buried on the farm if they, you know, if the farm owner is okay with that. Many towns have ordinances to prohibit this specifically, but I think a lot of owners just really want their horse buried on the farm and they say, you know, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. So that's option one. We do have um, a service available where the, the horse's body will be picked up and buried elsewhere. That's an option locally for us, luckily, because that's been a lifesaver in a number of situations where it's really unclear what we're going to do with the body. And then there's cremation services. Those are available. They'll usually pick up, um, but the price is fairly high. So it averages right now about $3,000 for a horse to be cremated, and that does include pickup of the body. 
there's other options that are maybe coming down the line. Composting, I know there's at least one facility in Maine that will compost horses. Um, and if the owner, you know, can even come see the site as the horse decomposes, doesn't look like much, but they do allow that type of thing. So maybe help with the grieving process. So composting is definitely on the rise. There's more composting facilities available. And then alkaline digestion is another one that may be coming in the future. So there's a way to basically use strong base to make to basically dissolve the carcass. And then what you're left with is like a protein-rich liquid that I'm, I think can have some applications as fertilizer and things like that. But you have a potentially usable product um, at the end of it, as you would with composting. But the alkaline digester is a little bit quicker. And that's something that... It's available, I think, typically right now only at like universities that do, you know, postmortem exams and stuff often have an alkaline digester, but it's not something that's usable as like an individual horse scale around us yet. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, this is something that you deal with on a regular basis as a veterinarian. And I don't know, I mean, I personally couldn't, I don't think that I could have the emotional strength to do that all the time. So I don't know if you want to touch on a little bit about what, how does, how do you deal with you know, this process and do you struggle with like compassion fatigue with animals that maybe are struggling for too long or like, is it, is it hard for you to have to put down horses regularly? What does that look like for, I mean, obviously you can't speak for every vet, but. (laughs) This is funny. Like the more I listen to this conversation, I'm like, I think everyone, all her listeners going to come away thinking that I just euthanize every (laughs) lame horse I come across. (laughs) That's really not the case at all. But when I think about the ones that are hardest for me or stick in my mind the most I think it's when you know those ones where in my opinion it was either too early or too late right those are the ones we remember so luckily I think too early is more the exception and the one example I might give of that is a horse that is like a high performance horse and they're insured for a fair amount of money and then they have an injury that is career ending but not necessarily life ending but they end up getting euthanized because they are basically you know have no value unless they are rideable and the insurance premium (laughs) is such that the owner is highly motivated to euthanize them that's really hard for me you know a, a dressage horse with a sore neck like as long as it's not doing dressage, it could live a perfectly happy life, but it can't do dressage. So, you know, it becomes my job to put it down. Like, that is hard for me. Um, there's a, a handful of those type of scenarios. But like I said, that's probably a lot less common than the opposite, which is, you know, when the decision is left way too long. So, you know, I, I can think of a horse fairly recently that had multiple lameness issues. He had some DSLD in the back and for a long time he just, you know, used his front end and when the front end began to fail, you know, we had a soft tissue injury in one leg and then laminitis in the other and then he was really like out of legs. And still, um, you know, his owner was like adamant that it wasn't going to happen. And and unfortunately, you know, in that scenario, the, the horse had to basically go down and not be able to get back up to make the horse, the owner make that decision. And, and that was a whole, you know, production of trying to get the horse up and failing. And that really, you know, is the, is the epitome to me of, of letting the horse down, is letting him get to that point where he can't even stand. Um, and that, uh, you know, it doesn't happen often, thankfully, but those are the ones that really, really are hard, you know, when t- 
to me, you know, they could have been let go months or in certain cases years earlier with a lot more dignity. So those are tough. And and yeah, I think I like to, whenever I feel like I lost my moral compass a little bit in terms of these decisions, because there's so many factors, right? There's, there's money, there's emotion, there's facilities, and there's horses, right? That you, you think like, I could save this horse, right? If I could bring this horse home and like do whatever to its feet, like I could save this horse, but I, it's not my horse and I can't do that to all of them. I have enough, believe me. (laughs) I don't like to admit how many I really truly have, but you know, knowing that it is the, it comes back to that word manageable, right? Like this is a manageable problem. Well, okay. It's manageable for some people. Like if you can pick up those feet and treat the canker or whatever it might be, like somebody could manage this, but this person cannot manage this, whether it's through time or finances or physical ability, this person can't manage this. And that, you know, you have to just respect the situation and, and the horse's dignity. And, and like I said, I always try to keep the horses. I'm the, I'm the horse's advocate. That's how I keep my even keel. Like I'm going to advocate for the horse. I don't always have control of the decisions that get made, but I'm going to advocate for the horse, the best of my ability, and then respect the decision of the owner. And is it, is it still, I mean, I feel like this might be a silly question, but is it still hard for you to euthanize a horse even if you know it is the right decision? Oh, sure. Like, it's never, it's never easy, right? <laughs> I mean, even even in situations where you know to the core of your person that there's no other option for this animal, like, you know, broken leg or whatever, you still, you know, I dwell on, like, all the possibilities. Like, what if we hadn't turned that horse out with that other horse and it got kicked. I mean, you can agonize over any number of things that there's no easy euthanasias at, at all. But I do like to remember my, um, I have a close family friend who's a human doctor. And one day, you know, she looked at me and just said, gosh, I just envy you that you have that option. She said, I envy you that you have that option. I, she said, I, I, do, I don't want to use it, but sometimes, boy, it's so hard to watch the alternative when you don't have that option for whatever, you know, reason. And so I think of it as like a, it's an honor sometimes to be able to like bring that all to a close. And I try to look at it as preserving the horse's dignity and that helps. Yeah. It helps. But there's so many, I mean, there's so many scenarios that are hard. I, I can't even possibly begin to list them all but one of them I will mention before we end is like so we do uh, a fair amount of work for a couple of rescues and neither one of the rescues we do a lot of work for euthanizes horses with any frequency it's very very unusual but I will say you know one thing that breaks my heart is the elderly horse relinquished to a sanctuary I had a case come in a couple years ago like a over 30 year old horse and he arrived and he he had some asthma that I think maybe wasn't obvious when he got on the trailer but when he got off the trailer he was like fully having an asthma attack the horse couldn't breathe he was lame he had had multiple bouts of laminitis you know and and we treated him because that I mean that was the right thing to do we treated him and got him sort of fully evaluated right so all his problems were fully worked out and eventually the decision was made to to put him to sleep it was a few months down the road once we had sort of tried to rehab him but I thought I'm sorry my friend like you didn't need to take that trailer ride like you should have died on the farm where you were with dignity you know and that it's not to belittle any of the work the rescues do it's amazing but 
don't let your old horse down. <laughs> let them go with dignity if that's, you know, the best thing for them. And I think, I think that, you know, that horse and others like him, their owners really let them down. Yeah. And that's really hard for me as the person who has to come in and, you know, do the deed. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we as humans let you down. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, those are the main points to touch on today, but do you have any advice for owners or farriers or other veterinarians in regards to like the guidelines or when to make that decision? I know you've talked about that a lot, so I don't know if you're No, no. Remarks. Yeah, I mean I think I think it's a process, right? So from the first moment that we, any of us on a horse's care team, whether we're owners, vets, farriers, trainers, friends, spouses, like from the minute you start to think like, ugh, I don't know if this horse can come through this, or I don't know if it's right to put this horse through this, you know, open up the lines of communication because to me, what a lot of people need sometimes is time to process it. So I try to bring it up gently, but like early if I can and say, you know, some people with horses with this problem do end up having to euthanize them when this happens, you know, uh, okay, we're dealing with laminitis in one foot, you know, if the other one, or they're dealing with a lameness issue in one foot, if they get laminitis in the other foot, sometimes that's a line in the sand to draw, you know, if, if the, if the supporting leg gets laminitis, and I, I propose this before that even happens, because then I think when, if it, it does happen, it can be sort of another thought moment for, for people to say like, okay, we talked about this months ago and it's happening now. So, you know, maybe it's time and sort of setting them up with some future because it's really easier to make the decision in advance. I'll give you another example that has nothing to do with lameness, which is one of my personal horses was a very, very hot thoroughbred mare. She was really awesome. I mean, it was one of my favorite horses to own, but I always had this thought like, I think if it came down to it, I would not put her through colic surgery because she could not handle the stall rest, you know, three months of stall rest. Like she would go bananas. So I always kind of had that in my mind, like, well, this one, I would not send her. And that scenario a few years down the line came up and she had a bad sudden colic that was very clearly like either surgery or euthanasia. And I was really glad at the time that I had thought about it when my mind was calm because I was able to say, like, nope, I've thought this through. I'm not going to do this to her. And, you know, we put her down right there. We didn't send her to the hospital or do anything else that would prolong her suffering because I had made that decision previously. And I think that was the right thing. But, boy, I tell you, when she was sick, like, when you're in the moment, you just want to do whatever you can to fix your horse, right? So I, in the moment, I was like... I wanted to do it. And my all, all my body was like, send her, do it, send her to the surgeon. And I had to sort of talk myself back. But having had that previous sort of conversation with myself made it a lot easier. So the more pre-thinking you do, I think the easier it will be. And so like I said, I try to try to sow the seeds ahead of time and, and give everything time to percolate because nobody is happy with decisions that are made quickly and nothing leads to regret like decisions that are made quickly. So another thing I tell my clients who are facing this decision is I said, it's never going to feel good. Don't expect to feel good about this decision because it's never going to feel good. But what you do need to feel is settled. Like you need to feel that 
you've explored the options and the alternatives and you feel like they're either not right or you've already tried them and they didn't work, you need to feel settled about the decision. And until that point, you know, it's irreversible. So if it's not right, if your gut is telling you that it's not right and you want to do this and you want to try something else, try it. Because I don't, you know, I don't want to be accused of hurting anyone into premature euthanasia. Again, I'm laughing like that's not how I operate. (laughs) But that helps people sometimes just saying like, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to feel good, but feel calm and feel calm. And if you're not calm, we need to talk more or you need to talk more to other people about it until you do. Yeah. So. Well, I really appreciate you being willing to talk about it because I know it's, I mean, it's not an easy topic anyway. And you, I feel like, you know, you're one of the best people to, to chat with this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you're really clear. So it's a really good conversation and I really appreciate it. So thank you for giving me your Sunday afternoon. No problem. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.